As your understanding of God's grace deepens, your love for God will grow and your pursuit of holiness will become even more intense as you get it, as you understand what Christ saved you from. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How do you know if you're a true Christian or not? What is the defining marker of a believer? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled Your Day in Court. We're looking at Romans chapter 3, wherein the Apostle Paul describes the moral corruption that all of humanity knows as depravity. You'll learn from this passage that there is not one human being that cannot be described from God's perspective as depraved. It's universal. It's also total. Nothing is left untouched in your being by sin. But there is hope for all of us in Jesus Christ. And Tom, understanding the doctrine of depravity is an essential part of the gospel, isn't it? It is. It's truly at the heart of the gospel. You know, that's why when Paul writes to the Roman believers and wants to explain to them the gospel that he preaches, he wanted them to support him in his next endeavor in Western Europe. And and so he never been there, didn't start the churches in Rome. He wanted them to understand the gospel he preached. Romans is that response, is that explanation that he's given us. And it's interesting that Paul starts with this issue of human sinfulness and the need for the gospel. Because in the end, if we don't understand our need for the gospel, then we're not going to see the gospel as the beautiful, wonderful gift that it is. And so it really begins our appreciation for the diamond that is the gospel begins with the dark background that is our need in human depravity. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. I still remember reading now, many years ago, a news article. It imprinted itself in my mind because, frankly, I read it, and as I read it, I laughed out loud. Here's how the article read. A New York City lawyer, that's a good start, isn't it? A New York City lawyer, Samuel Hirsch, filed suit this past Wednesday against McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, and KFC, saying that their fatty foods are responsible for his client's obesity and health-related problems. The soon-to-be class action lawsuit alleges that the four big fast food corporations are irresponsible and deceptive in the posting of their nutritional information, that they need to offer healthier options, and that they create a de facto addiction in their customers, end quote. Now, the article goes on, but my favorite quote in the article was from a law professor at the Manhattan Institute. This is what he said. Most people are aware that eating double cheeseburgers is not the same as celery. That's true. (laughs) And why would you want to eat celery anyway? (laughs) Why would you eat a food that consumes more calories digesting it than it gives you? 
That doesn't even make sense. Anyway, the article goes on. He went on to say, this law professor, that the suit was a blatant attempt to cash in on the recent publicity over obesity, along with the huge tobacco settlements. He said it disregarded the idea that people are responsible for their own actions, end quote. That's exactly right. That's really at the heart of it. Now, thankfully, what was obviously a frivolous lawsuit was eventually dismissed. Unfortunately, it took eight months of legal wrangling before it was dismissed. But that someone would even consider such a lawsuit really illustrates the fact that we live in a culture that is one of the most litigious in human history. People constantly abuse the civil court system. And frankly, the criminal court system fares no better. As one of our elders and attorney reminds me, there are fallen sinners on both sides of the criminal justice system. On the one hand, there can be, unfortunately, corrupt judges and corrupt law enforcement. On the other hand, people who have clearly broken the law commonly use the system to thwart true justice. There are corrupt attorneys. There are many good attorneys, but there are corrupt attorneys who use technicalities in the law, endless delays, complex legal maneuvering, not merely to provide the kind of protection that ought to be there for uh, our system, but really to help the truly guilty escape justice. In addition, many people, I would even say most people who are guilty of a crime refuse to acknowledge their guilt. I'm not talking merely about the, the not guilty plea, which can be a, a wise move legally. I'm talking about interpersonally, they won't admit their guilt. When I was in college, I ministered every Saturday night in a prison that was about 40 minutes away from where I was going to school. And I would preach there every Saturday night. I, I loved that. I loved the opportunity. But I can tell you, over the number of years that I ministered there, I only, I only remember meeting one person who said he deserved to be there. Every other man I met, dozens, probably hundreds of men, maintained that they had been unfairly treated and they were waiting for justice to be served. Everyone wants his day in court. I think it's part of the fallen human condition to think that if I can present my case, then it will become clear that either I am not guilty or there are extenuating circumstances that ought to be considered so that I am not truly responsible for what I did. Now, the tragic thing about this is that most people attribute this same perverted sense of justice to God. They think God's justice system works the same way. They think that they will one day stand before the all-knowing, all-holy God and that they will somehow tweak the system to get out of what they deserve. That somehow God will agree they're not responsible. I, I do sin, they will admit. But I just can't help it. You see, the real fault for my sin, they would argue, lies not with me, but outside of me. It's, it was my parents. It was my dysfunctional family. It's my inherited propensities. It's my environment. 
my addictive personality. The problem with me is my spouse or something else. But ultimately, all of our defenses in regard to our sin trace back to God. When we blame anything but ourselves, we are in reality blaming God. People want justice. No justice, no peace. Listen, if it's justice you want, it's justice you'll get. Because I promise you this, based on the authority of the Scripture, there is coming a day when there truly, in every sense of the expression, will be justice for all. In Paul's letter to the Romans, in just two brief verses, he allows us to see just what that will look like. He describes for us God's just verdict on every living person. Now, before we look at these two verses together, let me just remind you of the flow of Romans since it's been several weeks since we've looked at it together because of our Christmas study. Paul begins in the first 15 verses with a sort of general introduction uh, in chapter 1. And then in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he introduces his theme in a formal way. The theme of this letter is about the gospel. As he refers to it in verse 1, the gospel of God, the gospel that finds its source in God. The good news that God has made a way to declare sinners to be right with himself based on the work of Christ received by faith. But before Paul gets to the good news, he first lays out the bad news. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and running down to chapter 3, verse 18, he demonstrates man's universal need for the gospel, man's universal lack of personal righteousness. He details man's depravity, man's guilt before God. And in this section, he absolutely demolishes all hope that any person will ever be right with God based on his own personal merit or his own personal efforts. That's true in chapter 1 of the pagan. That is, the person who doesn't even claim to worship the true God of the Bible. The idolater. He is guilty and hopeless and utterly lacks righteousness. In chapter 2, verse 1, running through chapter 3, verse 8, the same thing is true for the Jew. The fact that they have the Scripture but don't practice it won't help them at the judgment, Paul says. So every human being needs a righteousness that they do not have. When we get to chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, the passage that we just read together a few moments ago... Paul describes and proves from the Scripture the moral corruption that theologians call depravity. We learn from this passage that depravity is universal. That is, there is not one human being that cannot be described from God's perspective as depraved. It's universal. It's also total depravity. That is, not only is every human being affected... Not only are you affected and am I affected, but it's total in that it permeates every part of our being. Nothing left untouched in our being by sin. So this paragraph, then, is one of the most important in the the entire Bible. In fact, let me put it to you bluntly. If you don't understand this paragraph, you cannot grasp the good news that begins in chapter 3, verse 21. You can't. 
Paul begins this key paragraph then with the formal indictment of man's depravity in verse 9. The formal indictment. What then? Are we better than they? I noted for you that the we there could be the Jews. Paul could be saying, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? That's possible. But there were several reasons I noted for you that I I lean toward this being, am I claiming that I and my fellow Christians are somehow better by nature than everyone else I've just indicted? And he says, verse 9, not at all. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There are no exceptions. By the way, verse 9 then is Paul's own summary of what he has already written in this letter so far. He says, notice the word charged. This is legal language. This is the language of a formal indictment. He says, I have so far in this letter made a formal indictment that all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, are legally guilty of sin against God. In verses 10 to 18, he moves to the second part of this paragraph, the biblical evidence for man's depravity. You know, it's interesting. If you look back in the first couple of chapters, there's very little scripture. Paul is laying out his indictment. But you come to this section, and it begins in verse 10, as it is written. Here, Paul introduces his biblical evidence, the proof that all men without exception, are under sin. He quotes seven different Old Testament passages from Psalms and from Isaiah. And in these verses, he proves from the Scripture that all men are totally depraved. They're under sin. Now, the evidence begins in verse 10 with a summary of that condition. As it is written, there is none righteous not even one. There's not one person who measures up to God's standard. That's what that means. That is a sort of summary. Not one person measures up to God's standard. Then he continues a string of references to illustrate just how deep our sinful condition goes, the depth of depravity. We looked at it, but he says, our minds are darkened. There's none who understands. Our wills are enslaved. There's none who seeks for God. We have rebellious lifestyles. We've turned from God's way to pursue our own way. We exhibit sinful behavior. There is none who practices or does what is good. Not even one. In verses 13 and 14, we have toxic speech. Everything that comes out of human mouths, it's toxic. There's cursing and bitterness and deceit and lying. And we just, we just pour out of what's in our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Toxic speech. As we learn, toxic speech then spills over in verses 15 to 17 into destructive relationships. We just destroy every relationship we touch. If it weren't for saving grace in those who are redeemed, and if it weren't for common grace in the lives of those who aren't, we would destroy everything we touch. That's the depth of depravity. In verse 18, he he comes to the foundation of depravity. Here's ground zero. Here's the real issue. Verse 18, there is no fear of God.
before their eyes. The reason we make these choices, the reasons we are the way we are, the reason that we do what we do is because we don't fear God, our creator. And therefore, we do what we want. Now, today we come to the third part of this paragraph. We've seen the formal indictment of man's depravity in verse 9. We've seen the biblical evidence for man's depravity in verses 10 to 18. In verses 19 and 20, we come to the legal implications of man's depravity. The legal implications of man's depravity. These two verses reveal God's view of every man. Here is man's true status before God. In fact, in these two verses, we hear God's final verdict on every human life. Don't forget, this this section of Romans is charged with legal language. Paul has laid out his indictment. He has laid out the evidence. And now comes the verdict in verses 19 and 20. What's remarkable here is is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, allows us to glimpse into the future. Paul fast forwards to the day described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 and following, the day when every single unbelieving human being will stand before God, his or her creator. It's called the the great white throne judgment. What happens there? What will God say to you if you get to that day without trusting in Christ? Well, Paul tells us right here. If you have never confessed Jesus as Lord, if you have never repented of your sins and put your confidence in Christ and his work alone, these two verses describe exactly what God will say to you on the day of judgment. This will be his verdict on your life. This is your story. If, on the other hand, you have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, and and I I trust that's true for many of us here, this passage is for you as well. Remember, Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in the Roman churches. Why is such a detailed description of man's sinfulness so important for us to hear? Why is it important for us to understand what the verdict would be for us apart from Christ? Because it's only as you come to grasp the reality of what your situation would be at the judgment if it weren't for the work of Jesus Christ that you really come to appreciate what God has done for you. It's only as you grasp in your mind how it would really unfold for you before God your creator if it weren't for what Jesus Christ did. It's only then that you will worship him as you ought to worship him. It's only then that you will love him and serve him and follow him with your life. As your understanding of God's grace deepens, as it does in studying a passage like this, your love for God will grow and your pursuit of holiness will become even more intense. As you, as you get it, as you understand what Christ saved you from. So if you're a Christian, as we walk our way through these verses, I want you for a few minutes to forget that you're a Christian. And I want you to see what, apart from Christ, your day in court would really be like. 
If you were to stand before God apart from his grace, this would be his verdict towards you. His verdict here in verses 19 and 20 contains five elements, or we could say five separate legal decisions that together constitute God's final verdict on every man. Because we're going to celebrate communion together, we're just going to look at the first one today, and then, Lord willing, we'll look at the other four next Sunday. The first decision in God's verdict toward every human being outside of Christ is this. We are responsible before God's law. We are responsible before God's law. Now think about it. That's very important. If God's about to condemn the sinner for breaking his law, he first has to establish that you are, in fact, responsible before his law. And that's where Paul begins. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Clearly, Paul is making a point here about our legal relationship to God's law. He begins by saying, now we know. Paul uses that expression when what he's about to say, he believes his readers will largely agree with. Most of them will say, that's true. And so he says, now we know that whatever the law says, clearly in context, he's talking about God's law, and he's talking about the content of God's law. What does he mean? Well, in context, obviously, he meant the Old Testament passages that he just quoted. That string of passages that begins in verse 10 runs down through verse 18 from the Psalms and from Isaiah. Whatever the law says, and certainly it says that. But the phrase is probably best translated more comprehensively. Something like this, everything that the law says or all that the law says Whenever and however God's law speaks. Literally, the Greek text says that God's law is constantly speaking, is speaking. It's a constant reality. But to whom is God's law constantly speaking? Notice how Paul refers to them in verse 19. It speaks to those who are under the law. Who are these people? who are under the law. Well, the phrase obviously can refer to the Jews. It's been used that way already. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. As he's indicting the Jewish people, he says, for all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles who don't have the written law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, and here he's talking to the Jews, will be judged by that written law that they have. So it can refer to the Jews. And many commentators say the first part of verse 19 in chapter 3 is referring to the Jews, and the second half of verse 19 and verse 20 is referring to the rest of humanity, all of humanity. That's possible. But I don't think so. Because remember, in verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul made a transition, a huge transition. He's talked about the pagans in chapter 1, the Jews in chapter 2 in the first eight verses of chapter 3. Verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And from that point forward, he talks about all of humanity. No exceptions. In fact, notice down in verse 19 the results of the law speaking to those who are under the law. The result of this is that every mouth 
is shut. Verse 19, all the world becomes accountable to God. Verse 20, no flesh is justified. So in context then, when he says those who are under the law, he must be referring to whom? Every human being without exception, Jew and Gentile. But how exactly does the law constantly speak? Well, obviously, the law speaks in, to those who have... That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Your Day in Court. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music